0: Hello and welcome to From Balloons to Drones, the official podcast of to drones.com where we explore the development of military air power from the earliest days of flight until today. I'm Mike Hankins.
1: And I am Brian lastly And our guest today is our very own co-host, Dr. Michael Hankins, curator of post-World War II Air Force aircraft at the Smithsonian and author of the new book Flying Camelot, the F-15, the F-16, and the Weaponization of fighter pilot nostalgia. Mike, welcome to your own show.
0: <laughs> Thank you. It's great to be here uh, as usual, but it's nice to be in the hot seat for the first time.
1: Yeah, and, and we got a whole bunch of uh, hot seat questions for you. So, uh, But before we get started, tell us a little bit about how you came to this project in the first place.
0: Sure. Well, I knew I wanted to write about these two airplanes the f-15 eagle and the f-16 fighting falcon they're very interesting i just think they're you know ever since i was a kid i've kind of loved these airplanes and I really wanted to delve into them, and I was interested in more of the technology story, like how did these planes get built or designed, and why did they get designed that way, as opposed to something else. And when I started researching this, I knew absolutely nothing about that. So I just started digging into some books and looking at things, and I started noticing several trends, right? You know, this guy, John Boyd, shows up a lot in both of these aircraft, and so I was thinking about, well, this guy's really interesting. What's going on with him? go down that rabbit hole a little bit and then i also started noticing several other things like not only Boyd but several of the other people involved in both of these aircraft they referenced world war 1 a lot they talk about dogfighting a lot in the kind of world war 1 style or at least the kind of constructed ideal of what world war 1 kind of was with that you know snoopy and the red baron kind of mindset And noticing how often these things showed up and these ideas showed up really got me thinking about how this is more than just a technology story. I don't want to just get bogged down in the nuts and bolts, maybe literally, about how these airplanes were designed. But this is really a cultural story. This is about how people, like individuals with very particular personalities and cultural proclivities and belief systems and thoughts all come together. And those viewpoints kind of merge and sometimes reinforce each other and sometimes conflict with each other. And you end up getting these aircraft, which are really incredible aircraft, but they're very contested in the design phase. So that really fascinated me. And that's what drew me to the project in the first place.
1: Okay. So you've covered this a little bit, but in a nutshell, tell us what the book itself is about.
0: Sure. The book is at its core, the idea that the culture of fighter pilots, you know, broadly defined, has an effect on technology decision making. So when people are deciding how to design an aircraft in a certain way, that isn't coming out of nowhere. It's not, it's not even necessarily coming only out of a mission set necessarily, although that is part of it. But the design of really I everything, mean, the design of anything is a product of human decisions, like people make things for certain reasons. And the people that are making them are humans like the rest of us. And they have certain things they like or don't like, certain things they want to do or don't want to do. They're a product of certain cultures and time periods. And all of those things come together to design technologies, right? Technology doesn't just appear out of nowhere. Like the iPhone doesn't just appear out of the sky. It is a product of a very particular culture, right? The same way that the F-16 is a product of a very specific culture, as well as other influences too. There's other things besides culture that influence these aircraft. But that's what the book is about. So what I say in the intro is this book is the biography of an idea. And what I mean by that is I'm kind of trying to first define what is fighter pilot culture. When I use that phrase, what do I mean? And, and we can talk about that in a little bit if you want. But once I kind of define that, I, I track how did that culture evolve over time and what effects does that culture have on technology, particularly with these two airplanes, And then after those two airplanes were designed, what happened to that culture, you know, in the years that followed them? So that's kind of the track that this takes.
1: Well, let's go ahead and talk about that idea of fighter pilot culture for a minute, because you go farther than I have seen other historians go, and you actually give five kind of what you call core elements of fighter pilot culture. What are
0: they? Oh, that's a great question. I'm glad you asked that. I'm glad you mentioned other historians because I'm definitely building off of other people here. So there's a lot of good work out there. John Sherwood's done a good job with this. Um, My favorite version of the fighter pilot culture is probably Steve Fino's book, Tiger Check, if no one's read that, that's worth picking up. But I'm trying to build on those books and others. And like you said, I've kind of identified what I think are the five core characteristics of Quote unquote fighter pilot culture. And before I mention them, I'll say this is a spectrum, right? It's not that every fighter pilot meets all of these criteria necessarily or agrees with all of them. Like some fighter pilots are very much the epitome of all five ideas. Some fighter pilots are kind of have their feet in some of them. Some fighter pilots reject these ideas completely. But I think that these five elements do show up kind of generally within this culture and are generally smiled upon. Within that culture, so number one is aggressiveness, and this one showed up the most. You know, when I the the way that I found these elements is basically pouring over a huge amount of memoirs, oral histories, interviews. Like, how are people talking about other fighter pilots? How are they talking about themselves? You know, what do they see their place as? And people like Carl Bilder have done some good studies of cultures in the military as well to build off of. But aggressiveness showed up for fighter pilots more than anything else by a pretty big margin. And so aggressiveness could mean like eagerness to get into battle. You know, these are the people that like to to mix it up. This is where this idea of the warrior ethos, you know, whatever that means to you, uh, that kind of is wrapped up in this. And it also could include the idea of competition. You know, sometimes fighter pilots like to compete with each other in various ways. And that's kind of included in the aggressiveness category. So number two...
1: Well, hang on. Before you get to number two, I'd like to say that you know aggressiveness immediately reminds me of two things as we're talking about this. Uh, obviously, number one is Robin Olds. I can't tell you how many times he talks about that. But the other thing is uh, James Salter's book, The Hunters, mm-hmm. about flying fighter aircraft uh, during Korea, where he talks about MiGs were everything. And obviously, the only way you were going to get MiGs is to be aggressive and go out there and do it. So not to step on your your point too much, uh, but those two things did pop into my mind as we were talking about this.
0: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, those are both great examples of exactly what I'm talking about. And the Psalter book is particularly interesting. I'm glad you mentioned that because you could read that book and some people have interpreted this book to be you know, critical of these things by saying, you know, look look at what this aggressiveness is kind of doing to these folks. Some people will celebrate that book as kind of a celebration of that characteristic. The aggressiveness is seen as being core, regardless of how you interpret that, which I think is interesting. So number two would be independence. And this one definitely was a close second to aggressiveness. And this includes a number of ideas, but the idea that the fighter pilot, you know, it's a, you're a single seat usually. I have a lot of discussion in the book about the nature of the, the two-seater fighter aircraft. Uh, and the relationships that happen there. But for the most part, fighter pilots like to think of themselves as individuals. They're making an individual decision. They're in charge of the airplane. They don't have to have kind of the interaction with a larger crew that you see with, you know, bomber crews or transport crews and st- things like that. There's also an element of the independence that includes this kind of anti-authority element. You know, a lot of fighter pilots are kind of critical of authority figures telling them what to do. You know, there's a lot of critique of leadership that's inherent in this culture. Not all the time. If if the leader is a also respected fighter pilot, then, you know, they are kind of revered. And Robin Olds is a great example of that. So number three would be heroic imagery. And this is, uh, this is where you get the kind of knights of the air mentality. A lot of fighter pilots will compare themselves to earlier kind of heroic images, whether it's knights, or King Arthur, uh, you see a lot of reference to kind of Greek and Roman mythology. And in later years, you'll see people calling back to earlier generations of fighter pilots like in the Vietnam or Gulf War era, people seeing themselves as kind of the new versions of World War One or two pilots as well. Number four is technology. and you know obviously any sort of pilot is going to be associated with technology because an airplane is a technology. But particularly fighter pilots like technology that enhances, their role as fighters. So there's certain types of technology that they will advocate for. uh, And that's why that's in there. Number five is community. And although there is competition that I mentioned, the fighter pilot community is a pretty tight knit and protective community. You know, they see themselves as kind of on the same team. They want to help each other. And they're kind of suspicious of people outside of that community sometimes. So that's the five. But I also want to mention that there is a sixth element that I think wraps through all of these. And that is masculinity. And I call to that. And a lot of these characteristics will be coded as masculine. And that's an element of the book that I think is really interesting. I have not taken this study past, you know, the 1993 time where women are now allowed to fly combat missions. I think that would be a great topic for another scholar to take up uh, and see how is the culture affected when women start getting into the uh, seats of these fighters as well.
1: You know, I want to go back to the idea of heroic imagery for a minute. And one thing that is really interesting to me and how many times it popped up, not only in in your book in particular, but in other works, is the idea of Snoopy mm-hmm. flying as the World War One flying ace. That is, that is replete, not only, as I said, in your book, but in other stories, fighter pilots thinking, wanting to be Snoopy. Uh, in particular, Robin Old says this, doesn't he?
0: Absolutely. Robin Olds has a great quote where he says, "I was Snoopy in my dreams," where he would have these repeated dreams of, you know, shooting down MIGs and and seeing himself as a version of Snoopy and that's what he strove to be. You'll see the Snoopy used as an icon on patches and squadron artwork and it's all over the place and and that's true extensively in the fighter community, but it also goes outside of that. I mean, you see that in the space exploration community as well. You see that in other types of aviation. So that one's not necessarily unique to fighters, but I think it's definitely more uh, widespread within that fighter community.
1: So we can stay on this idea of heroic imagery, but it also kind of ties in to other of the, the five core elements that you talk about. Uh, in your introduction, you clearly show that there's this direct link between modern fighter pilots and concepts of World War One aviation. Why is that link so important?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I think World War One is the origin point for this culture in a lot of ways. And it's, it's not necessarily coming out of nowhere. You know, the type of fighter pilot mentality that I'm discussing has kind of earlier versions within Army culture. And that's something that uh, Brian Lynn has discussed in some of his work. But Linda Robertson's book about World War One fighter pilots is really good on this point, talking about, you know, World War One as this origin point for this kind of fighter pilot culture kind of emerges. And it has all these elements. And I think that carries through. And so for people of later generations, it's easy for them to look back to World War One and see like, that was the idea that we're striving for. You know, we all want to be Eddie Rickenbacker shooting down the Red Baron, or or maybe we want to be the Red Baron, you know, whatever it is, that's kind of that ideological starting point. But what's interesting about it is, if you start digging into the World War One fighter combat stories in detail, there's this kind of image that we have, right, of the knights of the air, the gentlemanly duels. And the thing about this concept of World War I as this kind of gentlemanly combat is that it is occasionally true. Like you'll see these stories of fighter pilots interacting in this kind of chivalrous way. But that's usually the exception rather than the norm. And a lot of the combat that you see in World War One is... Very brutal and deadly and psychologically scarring, you know. And so this concept of the, you know, Snoopy and the Red Baron, these kind of romantic ideas of World War I are kind of constructed. They're not entirely accurate, but that's the idea that a lot of us have in our heads. And that's the idea that kind of stuck both with pilots themselves and kind of in pop culture too. So I think that idea is influencing what a lot of modern fighter pilots are kind of looking at and trying to recreate in a way. Again, it's not everybody and it's on a spectrum. So I just want to emphasize not all fighter pilots are the same. I'm not trying to say that.
1: Yeah, this just occurs to me as you're talking about that and you talk about kind of the mythology of the World War One fighter pilot and how it's handed down generation to generation. Uh, and you do mention this, that it turns up in things like comics. Mm-hmm. Uh is it Terry and the Air Pirates or Steve Canyon? Turns up in Wonder Woman, uh, Modern Incarnations, it turns up in things like Star Wars. The idea of what a good fighter pilot is all kind of ties back to, to World War One.
0: Absolutely, I mean, what is the first thing we learn about Anakin Skywalker in Star Wars? It's that he was a great fighter pilot. That's the first thing Obi-Wan tells us about him, right? Spoiler alert for a 1977 movie.
1: But you can also do it with the new generation. Who does Leia send when she's got to send someone on a mission? She sends Poe Dameron. And why is he going to be good? Well, he's a good pilot.
0: Exactly. Exactly.
1: So, you know, along with your core elements, this book is about aircraft design and the role that fighter pilots in particular held in developing the F-15 and F-16. So talk for a minute about the time frame, the culture, and the momentum that goes into creating the F-15 and the F-16.
0: Yeah, that's a great question, because uh, this is all happening at a very interesting and kind of special historical moment, right? We were in the middle of the Vietnam War, so we're talking kind of mid-60s is when the push for the F-15 really starts. Like You can see it, the earliest is like 64 is when there's this idea. And what's coming before that is, you know, most of the people in command in the Air Force are former bomber pilots. Bombing doctrine and strategic bombing doctrine is kind of the overriding factor within the Air Force. And there's this idea that like the bombing is the most important thing, strategic bombing, and also defending against potential strategic bombers, you know, coming from the Soviets against the United States is also an important part of that. The idea of dogfighting and this kind of air-to-air combat, you know, World War II style or World War I style was really kind of out of favor. A lot of planners thought that those days were over. Um, that that wouldn't be happening in the future. So most of the aircraft being designed in the 50s and into the early 60s, you know, it's the Century Series. It's your F-101, F-102, you know, F-106, F-105. Even the F-4 Phantom, which is the most versatile of the bunch, is, is part of that group of kind of, you know, they're meant to be high-speed interceptors, not really dogfighters mixing it up in a furball, you know. So that's the context for where the technology's going. So there's a building group of you know at first very small group of fighter pilots that see that their preferred role which is air-to-air combat is kind of being neglected and they're trying to generate some momentum for getting a new air-to-air fighter more in the mold of that World War I World War II or maybe even more like an F-86 style air-to-air maneuverable dogfighter airplane while that's happening There's all kinds of other things happening at the same time that kind of synchronize with that or synergize with that. And that includes more former fighter pilots getting put in leadership positions around the Air Force. And that's a process that goes on throughout the 60s and into the early 70s. Um, So most of those old bomber guys are starting to retire. You know, there's more fighter pilots now in the Air Force and they're rising to positions of leadership. And, you know, that doesn't necessarily mean that, you know, a commanders only cares about what they used to fly. But it's it's a indicator of of the direction of thinking uh, but there's all the other new technologies that are playing into this as well like laser guided weapons do a lot for increasing the striking power of you know a tactical aircraft you know what what used to take a very large bomber you can now do with a couple of small fighters dropping laser guided weapons so those are some of the trends that are kind of leading to this increasing desire for a let's maybe do a more air-to-air focused fighter this is a role that's kind of been neglected and what we've seen in Vietnam now because by the time you get to that mid-60s late 60s you know the air-to-air fight in Vietnam versus the MiGs is not going as well as the Air Force would like it to be going and so there's this kind of recognition that maybe this is a role that needs a little bit more focus And there's a lot of discussions being had. And there are strong feelings on all sides of that issue within the Air Force. Different people advocating for different types of aircraft for different reasons. But all those factors are playing into that.
1: Yeah, exactly. So specifically, what do fighter pilots want to see in what is going to eventually become the F-15 and F-16? What do they want?
0: Well, it depends on who you ask, but I think the most extreme version of the kind of fighter pilot culture folks that I'm discussing, what they really want is a completely optimized air-to-air daytime only fighter. So they're suspicious of some of these new technologies like missiles and radar because they're looking at the Vietnam experience and they're saying, hey, the missiles are not working very well. You know, like, an air-to-air missile hit rate in Vietnam is is what, 10% if that, somewhere give or take in that range. So there's the suspicion that missiles are not going to cut it. We need to rely on guns and the radars are so heavy and also emitting a radar signal might give away your position. So maybe we shouldn't use them at all. So there's this idea of we want to use our eyes and we want to use our guns just like they did in World War II, just like they did in World War One. We can do that same thing, but with modern jets. And to do that, we need to maximize maneuverability at the expense of everything else. So they want the lightest, smallest possible airplane they can get. They don't care as much about top speed, which was a big shift. Because up until that point, the Air Force was really like, how fast can we go? We want the fastest airplane. You know, and there were reasons for doing that. But what a lot of these fighter advocates wanted was, I don't care if it's fast. It can be Mach 1. Most dogfights happen right around Mach 1, give or take a little bit. So they want an aircraft that's optimized to turn fastest and hardest right around that speed with guns, no radar or a small radar, if anything. Uh, and that's kind of what they're shooting for. And they also want to strip it of any sort of accessories. There's lots of very angry fights about landing gear and ladders and tail hooks and things like that where people get very upset about the weight of these kind of ancillary items being added to the fighters.
1: Well, you you talk about them wanting a small lightweight day fighter. That's not the F15. Right. What happens here? How do we go from what they want to what they initially ended up with?
0: This is a great story. So, I To keep it, you know, a short version of the story, the F-15 was already kind of halfway designed when these kind of fighter advocates come into the picture. So there was a group working on what was then called the FX for Fighter Experimental. And there were people that wanted a kind of lighter weight version of it. And then there were other folks advocating for a more multi-role type of plane. And basically the compromise they had come up with looked a lot like an F-111. It was a very large variable sweep wing with a tandem seat. It was big and bulky. And there was a lot of fighting about, you know, is this really the airplane we want? So they decided to bring in some new people to look at it. And that included John Boyd, who was a F-86 pilot. And he was kind of the leader of this more extreme group of fighter advocates that wanted this lightweight approach. So he tried to, and he's not working alone, I should say. Like, there are many people in his chain of command and kind of lateral to him, like contacts he had within the Air Force and in the civilian world that helped him with this. But he tried to bring that plan down as much as possible uh, and to bring the requirements for what the F-15 would be to make it as small and lightweight and maneuverable as possible and, you know, trying to get it optimized for that air-to-air role. He actually did not like what they ended up with. So when the F-15, you know, it ends up being designed by McDonnell and eventually McDonnell Douglas once the merger happened. But the design they came up with, Boyd was not happy with that at all. And thought it was too big and too bulky and too heavy. So he then worked with several other people, friends of his, both inside and outside of Air Force and DoD, to kind of secretly working on nights and weekends in hotel rooms, you know, speaking in coded language so they didn't get caught, working on what they wanted, their ideal lightweight fighter. If they could design a fighter from scratch, what would it be? And they worked on that for a long time. And that's what eventually becomes the F-16. But that's a long process into getting that from discussing that in a hotel room to it, you know, being in production.
1: Well, let's keep going with the role that John Boyd and, you know, the group that became known as the Reformers, other than, you know, really wanting to create a, a small, lightweight fighter, what role does Boyd and his acolytes play here?
0: Yeah, they play a number of interesting roles. And before they're known as the Reformers, you know, that happens a little bit later. But in the time period where we're looking at like the late 60s, they come to call themselves the Fighter Mafia. And it's this group of folks and John Boyd's sort of running it. But they're, you know, it depends on who you ask who's running the Fighter Mafia. You know, there's multiple claims to leadership there. But they are trying to create this lightweight fighter. You know, what's going to end up being the f 16 And so they're doing some stuff kind of behind the scenes. They're kind of working in secret and then they're getting help when they need it. And they're trying to get support from leadership to make this airplane. What's interesting is there are other people above them, like General Glenn Kent would be probably the the leader of that group. And there are other people associated with them as well that wanted the same thing. They also wanted a very small, lightweight dogfighter, maybe not to the extremes that boy did, but something very similar to that. And what's funny is even though they both have the same goals, Sometimes Boyd and the fighter mafia were so, what should I say, aggressive in how they, you know, advocated for what they wanted. They burned some bridges and they made some enemies. That's the nice way of putting it. And so sometimes people like Kent had to kind of work around the fighter mafia and try to smooth over those relationships and kind of run cover for them. Because, you know, Boyd is a passionate person and the the other fighter mafia folks, they're very passionate. They really want what they want. And they fight for it. And when they found someone that agreed with them and supported them, that their passion really helped build that momentum. But when they ran into folks that kind of disagreed with them, that could create a lot of friction that ended up kind of slowing down their progress. But there were other advocates that were helping smooth that over. And that's one of the reasons that process was able to keep going.
1: So at the end of the day, what we end up with here is the F-15 Eagle and the F-16 Fighting Falcon long before Viper kind of becomes the common moniker there. But kind of tell us the end result here. What do we end up with and were the fighter pilots of the time happy with what they got?
0: I mean, the short answer to that is not at all. And this is what's interesting to me because Boyd gets a lot of credit and in large part rightly so for his influence on the F-15 and F-16. But what I think is interesting is he did not approve of either aircraft. You know, I already mentioned that he wasn't happy with the F-15. When the F-16 gets finished, they liked the prototype. The prototype was kind of what they wanted, the YF-16. But once it moved into production, it got a little bit bigger. It got a little bit heavier. And the Air Force's approach was that the F 16, even though Boyd and the Fighter Mafia meant that to be a pure air to air only fighter, the Air Force's idea was well, that's the F 15's job. That's our air to air fighter. The F 16 looks like it would be great at being a multi role kind of aircraft. It looks very versatile, and it is. It's an incredibly versatile aircraft. It's done almost anything an aircraft can do in terms of mission sets, but the Air Force when they put it into production, immediately starts, let's give it more bomb racks and increase its ground attack role. And we'll put a big radar in the front of it and we'll make it nuclear capable, you know, and and all these things that Boyd hated. And so Boyd ends up being extremely frustrated with the F-16. And he kind of writes off both of those. And it's it's not too long after the F-16 goes into production that he retires.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it is an absolutely fascinating story. Both of these aircraft have become not only mainstays of the United States Air Force, but other air forces around the globe. And more likely than not, when, when you think about fighters, the first thing to pop into your mind uh, is going to be an F-15 or an F-16. Uh, so is there anything else you want to add
0: about the book? Yeah, I think this story has a lot of relevance for today. You know, there's a lot of legacies of this. Because what happens after Boyd's retirement, this group that was the fighter mafia kind of evolves into, you know, you mentioned the reformers, which is also Boyd and and some other folks that really push this idea of they're worried that technology is too complicated and expensive, defense technology. And so they're advocating for simpler weapons, cheaper weapons, because they think those are going to be more effective. And I detail a lot of the debates around that in the book. But the legacies of that type of thinking are still with us. You know, there's still folks advocating for those same things, saying that the FA 18s are too complicated or expensive and we need something simpler. You know, you see these arguments show up again and again. And what I think made Boyd so popular at the time was that he was speaking to people coming out of the Vietnam experience, right? Vietnam is ending. There's a sense throughout the defense community that things were not ideal there, to say the least. And so, for someone like Boyd and the fighter mafia and the reformers to be saying, Hey, we kind of got it wrong. We weren't doing things optimally in Vietnam, but there's a better way, and it'll actually cost us less money. That was a very popular message that resonated with a lot of people. And so, I'm I would not be surprised at all if, as we are currently coming out of this Afghanistan experience and dealing with a very similar idea of, wow, what happened there and were we doing the right things in terms of technology and doctrine and questions like that, I think those types of messages might start to have more sway again. So I wouldn't be surprised if that kind of, or if we see a resurgence in that kind of reformer style thinking about technology and budgets and things. Yeah.
1: Well again, I'm slightly biased uh as our listeners know. I did a blurb on this. Uh I've been involved with this project probably since uh since the the very early days since you were uh working on it at the beginning. And I'm I'm just so happy to to see it too, to fruition and to see you have this uh uh magnificent book out there now. So tell us uh, what are you working on now?
0: Thank you so much for those kind words. That's great. And you have been there from the beginning of this project and i really appreciate all the input and the book's a lot better than it would have been given your input with what i'm working on now i have started a second book i'll keep it on the dl as to what it's about because i'm in the very early stages of, of formulating it but that's exciting I do have a really, I have two interesting projects that I'll mention. And one is an article that will go into a edited collection book later. That's some stuff about the F-15 and 16 that didn't make it in the book. And it's more about how those planes were marketed. So I I do a look at the advertising campaigns for those aircraft. And that's really fun. And then I'm working on another project that's also an article for an edited volume about the Air Force in space uh, and their space projects around that same time frame. So that should be fun too.
1: Yeah, and I, I do know the book project that uh, that Mike is currently working on, and I, I won't out him here, uh, but stay tuned for more details on that because that is going to be a, another, another great project. So, uh, Mike, where can we find more of you online?
0: Sure, I'm at MWHankins.com and you can find me on Twitter at Hankenstein, spelled with the T I E N.
1: Yeah, and obviously uh, our listeners can find me at www.brianlashley.com and on Twitter at Brian Lashley. And you can find both of us along with our other editors at Balloons to Drones.
0: Well, thanks again for having me and for uh, grilling me with these questions. I really appreciate it. I'll mention our music was created by Jason Davis at Digital Fish Media, which you can find on Facebook at digitalfishmedia.org. Please get a hold of any of us through the Balloons to Drones contact pages. And thank you, and we'll see you guys next time.